Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Thank you everyone for joining today. Uh, I'm Bob Hayes, an MBA student at MIT Sloan. Happy to introduce us to our awesome soccer panel today which is called Beyond Expected Goals, Analyzing and Implementing the Next Phase of Soccer Analytics. Uh, we have an excellent set of panelists for you today. Right here we have Raul Pelayas, CEO and co-founder of Elite, coming off of 11 years with FC Barcelona. We have Lucy Rushton, General Manager and Head of Technical Recruitment and Analysis at DC United, coming off of a very fruitful stretch at Atlanta United. We have Luke Bourne, who is the co-founder and chief scientist at Zalu Analytics, uh, formerly led analytics at AS Roma and the Sacramento Kings. We have Jason Rosenfeld, analytics advisor at FIFA, coming off of nearly a decade at Arsenal. And then we have Ted Knutson down there, CEO and co-founder of StatsBomb. He will be monitor moderating us today. Uh, so if you have any questions, I think you all know the drill by now, submit those on Twitter. Our hashtag is hashtag football data is life. We will be trying to hit those live, uh, and we'll get as many as we can. Uh, thank you all for joining us today, and I will turn it over to Ted. Hi there. Nice to see you all here. All right, so for years, this panel asks, when would soccer see widespread use of data and analytics in the sport? It is now March 2022, and that question has been conclusively answered. It is now. Hundreds of teams around the world use data and analytics in sport every day, in this sport every day. They don't necessarily use it well, and they don't even always use the best data, but it is no longer the unknown frontier. Billy Bean, one of the key forefathers of data use in sport and pioneer of Moneyball, owns a soccer team with Luke Bourne. <clears throat> David Blitzer, co-owner of the Trust the Process 76ers, who's current president of basketball operations, is Daryl Morey, you might have heard of, uh, just bought his sixth soccer team. American ownership of world soccer assets has dramatically increased over the last five years and continues to rise. With it typically comes a direct emphasis on use of data. Now, that's not to say that the Americans are the only ones, but it is usually part of the plan when they take over a club. FIFA, Jason, recently unveiled a new data spec for their competitions that takes 20 or more people to collect it live. There have been lots of changes behind the scenes, especially from some of the oldest G practitioners in the, in the sport. Jason, who used to be at StatDNA, now has left Arsenal, as mentioned. Sarah Rudd, also former StatDNA. Ravi Ramaneni, Seattle Sounders, all have new gigs. Uh, Luke, once it was at Roma, then the Sacramento Kings, also New Horizons. Chris Anderson, former panelist here. There are so many. Analytic talent has gone from not having jobs in this sport to being actively headhunted. So today, we're going to switch things up a little bit from how it's gone in the past. We're going to believe a little more. And we're going to talk to our panelists about their jobs and their experience, because we have so much experience on this stage. This is one of the most well-seasoned panels we've ever had here, partly because they started very early on. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the olden days. We're going to talk about some of the very new days and, uh, and everything in between. All right, Luke, as a person with the oldest and longest Sloan pedigree here, to my knowledge anyway, and the only owner on the panel, we'll start with you. You recently came into a team that had no data. Where do you start, and how do you approach that question? That's a good question. You know, we bought Toulouse almost two years ago now, um, but our path to club acquisition started about five, six years ago. 
And so because, you know, we, we really think that our edge is data, that the data side started that, you know, that long ago as well. And so when we sort of started down this path of club acquisition, the first thing we did is sort of had the same reaction others do. Like, we can do this better than them. Like, we see North American sports, we see all these edges and things. Like, we, we see all these inefficiencies, we can do it better. But then, you know, we look at data and we looked at the long history of Americans who have taken over football clubs and saw pretty quickly that m the vast majority of them have absolutely lost their shirt, like losing money hand over fist and, and oftentimes sort of retreating with their tail between their legs a few years later. And so we had to sort of like adjust our prior and just say like, hey, we, before we go even go down this path of starting due diligence and getting into data rooms and all that kind of stuff, we need to like provably back test that our strategy is profitable. And so that we started way before we bought Toulouse, uh, acquiring data, building out an analytics team, to essentially say the question, you know, if we ran Reading in 2015, would we, how would we have performed versus how they actually did? If we ran Southampton in 2018, and of course we can automate that process to sort of figure out, can we conclusively say that we have an edge here that's worth pursuing? So that started way before Toulouse. So when we actually acquired Toulouse, we were on the ground running, had a really significant presence already at that point. All right, so oftentimes this panel will come back and usually there's a, a strong American presence on here. We usually talk about the US national team. Uh, sometimes we'll talk about MLS. Lucy, you have a, a pretty unique perspective. You've been at, at some very interesting teams. Uh, so let's talk about something that's changed a ton this year, which is basically the state of play in MLS data usage. Yeah, I mean, I've been working in MLS now for, for, this is my sixth season, I think. And um, the changes over the last, over that last five years have, have been substantial from a data analysis point of view. Um, I feel like in some aspects we're catching up to, to probably the gold standard, like in England and Europe. Um, but in other areas, I think we've maybe somewhat surpassed them. Um, so MLS as a league really gives clubs the foundations to, to go and do good analysis by implementing league-wide kind of policies, um, whether it's the data provider, um, physical, technical, tactical, um, the kind of the standards for analysts in games, the video sharing, um, but then also doing that throughout the kind of younger age groups as well. And so in our USL setup, um, in our under-17s academies, you know, MLS are now kind of committing to that and providing data to the clubs at those age groups. So it's really given us the foundation to go and do good analysis. Um, but I think the second bit, which is, you know, for me where we've probably kind of edging and creeping closer to, to Europe is really how clubs are now hiring data scientists. Um, not video analysts or performance analysts, but investing good money in data scientists. And that's people with mathematics backgrounds, economics backgrounds, um, and they may not know the sport and they may have come from basketball or baseball, but the foundations of what they're able to do um, really is allowing us to take that data and take it to the next level. It's gone from four years ago where half the teams in the league didn't even have a data analyst to 100%, yeah. actually extremely competitive in the hiring market and, and sort of scrapping it out for talent. It's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, say, and I've seen that development over the last five years, and it's been really good to see the league invest in that, but also the clubs really take a stance and say, okay, this is where we need to go and, and learn, I guess, from basketball and baseball and American football and how they operate and really apply that to, to soccer. How much, how much of that has been like Seattle and Toronto, some of the more successful teams in recent years, being heavy investors, like in other teams just sort of copycatting? Um, to some extent, yeah. It's, it's, I think those clubs have shown the other clubs that 
that this is the process, and if you invest in this way, then you can achieve success. Um, but also the investment within the league as well in terms of Atlanta United, for example, as a new franchise, came in and backed it very heavily. LAFC as a new franchise, again, came in and the ownership were very strong on back-end data and analysis. So I think the more we get those new franchises as clubs, the, the more it kind of brings everybody else along with it because those clubs have performed very well too. You have to stop expanding at some point though. <laughs> or do you? How, how many teams are in this darn league? Yeah. <laughs> right, so Raul, you were part of the groundbreaking Barcelona Innovation Hub, uh, but especially involved in the use of the data with the first team squad, which isn't necessarily a thing that, that we kind of hear about. Spain in general, and Spanish language in particular, seems like it is a little bit further behind the English language. There's more teaching that's had to go, and that was part of the remit of the Innovation Hub, a lot of sort of like leading that area. But how did you approach this with the, the Barcelona coaches? Because I know you had a, a very unique and, and quite a long experience there. Well, it, Barca, Barca is a special club. It's, maybe it's not the best club of the world. Maybe it's not the worst. But all people uh, say that it's different than the rest. And, and also, uh, focusing in data is, is different. When we start to, to, to work with data, uh, the most important thing in, in Barca is, is, is the play, is knowledge the play. Uh, maybe one thing that uh, is different in Barca than other uh, academies or players is that they, they know better how to play. And for this reason, when we start to work with data in, in Barca, uh, our objective is, is to know the dynamic of the play and try to answer the question of the, play, uh, of the coaches with data and not the different way they come from, from data scientists delivering things to the, to the coaches. And for this reason, we start to, to, to study only focused using uh, positional data because we think that in the position of the 22 players in the world, they are the tactical, the tactical information. We try to, to understand uh, what happened in these dynamics at, with this kind of knowledge help uh, the coaches and the players to, to answer his questions. And for us, the most important is delivery to our athletes and our coaches more tools to, to automate the process to free time to make better decisions, but also understand what are happening when there are different things in, in, in the match. And at the end of the day, uh, soccer is an space temporal play and an holistic play, and we also need to, to accept that they can control it. Because maybe it's one of the more complex sports of the world, and they are something that we can control. And also, the score is very slow, <laughs> it's very short, and if you want to, to try to control or to, to, to use the score to uh, like a uh, key, key, uh, key data to, to, to give information is very difficult. It's, it's better to use the dynamics to understand wha what, what happened things or why happened things. Luke, I feel like you practically worked at Barcelona as well, but mostly because you were advisor to Javi Fernandez's groundbreaking work, you know, previous research papers here. Uh, congratulations, Javi, for getting your PhD recently. Um, you also had a big emphasis on, or at Hobby's work especially, big emphasis on space and, and dynamics and mm -hmm. like, you know, 
walking versus running is, is one of the, the popular sort of talks that this happened around here before. Uh, you haven't actually worked for Barcelona, have you? No. <laughs> okay. No, but we took a lot of flack for writing a paper that said Messi is really good at walking. <laughs> <laughs> but I think actually what a, a key point Raul just made was like, and he, he mentioned it twice, was using data based on, on what the coaches are asking for. Right. And I think what we're seeing now is a lot more buy-in from whether it's, it's head coaches or assistant coaches, um, general managers, um, owners, then actually those people are now, they want, they want the data and they've got a drive for it. And I don't think that was there necessarily like maybe five years ago. They've gotten a lot better at asking questions that are sure. useful, interesting questions as well, like mm -hmm. at least in, in our experience. So Jason, I want to kick it over to you um, because I'm, I'm kind of like amazed as somebody who actually runs and founded a data company. Tell us more about the new FIFA data and, and kind of why. Yeah, so um, first of all, FIFA and their usage of data is pretty distinct from probably most of what you run into and, and what most clubs need data for because FIFA you know, basically hosts a lot of tournaments at different levels with a limited number of games. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, I, when I went into FIFA, I was used to these very large data sets spanning lots of leagues where you had statistical significance and, and a lot of things that you're going to need in do, making good recruitment decisions. Um, FIFA really has two different audiences, I would say, mainly. One is people working in technical positions at the tournament. So um, these are the team analysts and people like that. And for them, the data you give them helps them analyze what's going on in the games. Um, FIFA made the decision to kind of make that data absolutely as good as it could possibly be um, because it has the resources to do it. And, you know, as part of uh, one of FIFA's big missions is to make it so that a lot more teams can be competitive in the tournaments. So not just kind of the top teams in Europe are always winning. And, and so if you can give the tools to everyone, not just the teams that already have kind of armies of analysts that collect, collect the data, then, then you're already helping that process. So that's one big factor around why that data you know, has been collected that way. Another thing is that um, as part of that, um, the team went through a really detailed and well thought out process about how to define what different events in football are. Because if you look across all the different data providers, there's pretty big inconsistencies in you know, what they may call even a shot. I mean, if you look at shot counts from your data and compare it to you know, Opta, it's gonna be different in that, you know, doesn't mean either one's right or wrong, it's just a different way of defining it. So FIFA really spent time with a lot of stakeholders, um, including even Arsene, you know, talking about, okay, how should we define this? Um, so this is a very um, high-end data spec that, you know, hopefully other organizations, they certainly won't repeat it because it's, I don't think it's economical for, you know, for StatsBomb to produce a data set like this, but... Certainly um, not live. <laughs> yeah, certainly not live, even post-match. But, um, you know, there are certain things you can definitely take from it. I know from my own experience in collecting data that standardization is an issue. Um, so, so you've got that part of it, which is aimed at one group. And then the other group that's really important to FIFA is the fans. Um, so this specific spec isn't really named, aimed at most fans. It's um, you know, perhaps some high-end fans who really love data will, will have a look at it, but we're doing a set of live statistics that will be, you know, calculated using tracking data from the matches that are just, 
you know, meant to add some knowledge and insight into the game using data live. Um, so that's the second push. And, and you know, a lot of the stuff that I'd been used to at Arsenal is, is not quite as applicable, to be honest. That's really interesting. Uh, so this panel, I think, is, is at an interesting sort of crux. Uh, we have the best player, arguably, in the world right now, in Mo Salah, who is coming up at the end of his contract. He's got one year left as of the summertime. And I believe he turns 30 this summer, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So this is kind of like the classic ESPN thing where like you get a bunch of talking heads out here and like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna go for some takes, but it's more takes about framework because it is this hugely challenging fundamental question about you have the best player in the world right now. He turns 30 in the summer. You've got one year to potentially sell him to someone, whatever the highest bidder is, or you, know, you, you then re-up him for one of the best salaries in the world and, and, and see you know, where that takes you. Luke, I think you have probably have the longest sort of cross-sport experience in this. How do you approach this? Yeah, you know, maybe it's, it's worthwhile thinking about what a baseball team would do. So a, a, a sort of intelligent baseball team would say, okay, what is the uh, financial value of Mo Salah in all of the rest of his career? So just to sort of make some numbers up, maybe he's worth 30 million in production next year and, and, and maybe he's getting older, so it's then it's 28 and so on. So you have a projection through his whole career. There's uncertainty, of course, around all of those things. So you can say for any given contract, whether there's surplus value there, whether you're overpaying, and even things to say, hey, given the current contract, we think we have a 75% chance that he outperforms that. Which, by the way, is just another way of saying for the same level of resources, can we buy the same number of points in the table as with this, with, with, as with this contract? So that's the way baseball teams would think about it, typically. Um, if they were playing this year at some point. <laughs> if, they, if they play, exactly. Um, in, in my experience, the way soccer teams would think about it is um, the sporting director would say, this guy is the reason we're winning, just pay him what he asks for. <laughs> no conversation over. But, but Liverpool's a particularly interesting example of this because they are baseball owners and uh, soccer owners, and so there's that, that mesh there. I was talking to, to somebody in the baseball space earlier today, and they were talking about how hard they, they sort of pull on the, the real age curve of players, and, and they are very scared of longer contracts for slightly older players. You have had that exact experience across Arsenal and seeing how that club, you know, not directly from you, but that club has operated. Where do you stand on this? I mean, firstly, the, you know, we did analysis. I, I would say for Mosala, one of his key assets is his pace. Um, explosiveness is something that tends to decrease earlier. So always with a wide player, you, you know, their aging curves are steeper and earlier, so that would already have me worried. Now then I would look and say, he scored 19 goals this year, I believe, so maybe I should be a little less concerned. Um, we looked at uh, aging curves specifically around speed, and you know they go down, but the variance around them is huge. So the first thing I would do is I would go talk to the physios, and I would say, get inside information. We're the only ones who have inside information on Mo Salah, so I wanna know, okay, do you see anything? Is there anything I should know about um, if his speed seems to be holding up, decreasing? That doesn't probably give me the answer if it will decrease necessarily, but at least I'll know if there's an issue. Um, and it's very different for, for that perspective than from the outside. Correct. So like you have like way better information to be able to make this decision because he's there. You know 
how he takes care of himself. And he actually does take great care of himself, according to people at Liverpool. So like, that is a unique situation where you have less risk than if you were grabbing him from the transfer market and then had to figure that out. Uh, I think that's actually key, like what you're talking about there in terms of the psychology of the player. And every player is different. So yeah. say the same player, could, somebody else could be scoring the same number of goals as Mo Salah, but hey, we know actually he doesn't look after himself um, or actually we've put up with him for the last three years and he's a nightmare for the head coach. Um, those are the things that inside a club, knowing about the psychology, the, the lifestyle of the player, the physical attributes of the player, which are really important. But also, I think we need to think about as well is the other pieces of the jigsaw. So why is Mo Salah scoring goals? Is it because of the players behind him? Is it because of the players working alongside him? And what is their contract status? And what is our projections for those players over the next two or three years as well? Um, because, say, football is a team dynamic sport. And I think there was a really kind of a famous example a few years back with, like, um, Torres at Liverpool and Gerrard. And data was showing that actually Torres scored most of his goals because of Gerard and the, and the work he'd done behind him. And so they weren't actually overly fussed, I guess is the word, about then losing him to another team who didn't have Gerard. So I think that comes into play with it as well. And he had the best song, and Fernando Torres, uh. Lady Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, they, you, can't, you can't replicate that one. So that was an unfortunate loss along with the production, but they didn't suffer too much there. So Raul, um, you know, the, the, the greatest player ever, the goat in the room, as it is, um, you know, Lionel Messi. Yes. Well, well it's, uh, speaking about Salah is very difficult because it's, uh, I don't know, uh, and every, every environment is different. Maybe the, the best thing that uh, Liverpool can do is measure the performance on Salah uh, paying uh, uh, like the performance every, every year. But uh, we have tools to measure the impact of one player uh, in the team because maybe we don't speak only to assistants or assists or, or, or goals. Maybe we need to measure how is the impact in the collective behavior of the of the of the team. And for this reason, uh, they are a long way for the data scientists to 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 measure these kind of things and maybe use. Uh, uh, the data to, to, to measure the contract of the, of the Salah. Because I don't know if Salah go out of other club, his performance is, uh, uh, is better or is worse. Uh, we are the experience with Messi, that Messi, their performance with Barca uh, in one way, when play with Argentina in another way, because maybe the environment to, to develop is, is, is very important. And also, I don't know, Messi is the best player of the world, and, and the second is Messi with one leg. Also. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this, this is spoken like a guy who's yeah. from Barcelona and continues to live there. <clears throat> Your family is there. You know. we, we know that you have to be a bit of a homer in this situation. You're in Boston, so that's totally normal here. <laughs> Ted, what I was going to say is one of the things you and I talked about was that um, I think clubs have gotten wiser to the aging curve in like four years ago, I'm pretty sure Liverpool probably wouldn't even be considering trying to re-sign him because someone would come in with a big offer they couldn't refuse and his salary would reflect that. Um, now, it's a more interesting situation where maybe the market's gonna be a bit more rational and they can do a deal that makes sense for Liverpool um, because obviously they're a rational player. So I think, especially because they've kind of filled in 
other positions that were aging by getting Luis Diaz and by getting Jota, like they're kind of waiting to see what they're going to do with the right wing. And I, I suspect it could go either way. I don't, I, they're not completely strict on how they operate. The Tiago deal was one of those classic ones. Like the problem with Tiago is he doesn't stay healthy, but he's, he's a great player when he's there. And they knew that they had a little bit of flex, or at least my understanding is, they had a bit of flex in that squad. They could take on one older player to be able to, to sort of like, you know, lock that in with an elite set of skills. Salah, they already own, has that elite set of skills. Maybe Mane is the one that has to shift out because they have the other players that, that are already there. Uh, they do a very good job, I would say, in, in managing their squad and, and their contracts, unlike certain other red teams that have had <coughs> trouble <laughs> years. Uh, not, not that I'm picking on yeah. you. I'm also an Arsenal fan, so this is the, the pain that I have. And a Greyhounds fan. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> All right, so... Um, Lucy, I want to go back to you because this is a thing that has changed a bunch over the last couple of years, and you have been focused on this pretty heavily. MLS is no longer a retirement league. This used to be a league that would hire and, and sign the old players that had name value. They bring them over, hoping that you know it would help increase like various things around the league in terms of uh, you know, profile and, and fan engagement, etc. Now, the best teams in the world come here to shop for the young players. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on there and like where you see it going. Yeah, I think the business model has probably changed for a lot of clubs in MLS in that respect in terms of, um, okay, let's try and acquire young talent from, from South America who, you know, given, given European laws and especially in England with Brexit and stuff, is now actually quite difficult to, to get those players straight into the country. Let's take them and, and show them that there's a stepping stone to Europe from here. Um, and use it as a pathway and, and that's a business model in terms of us making money then. Um, I think that we see that a lot in MLS now through various different clubs and it's very much gone away and, and, and as the league continues to grow, continues to get more money and more investment in it, then it's more about the quality of the league than perhaps it was 10 years ago. Um, and it's, it's less about just getting one superstar who can who can do well in the league, because ultimately that player might not do as well in the league now as they think they might, um, because the overall quality has improved. That's a good um, Turkey instead. Sorry? That's a good Turkey instead. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but no, so for me, it's really about just the business model of clubs changing and the thought process and, and giving fans what they want, which really is, is entertaining football. Um, you can get that at, uh, from acquiring younger talent, but you can also make money from that. And, you know, Atlanta United is the prime example of, of, of that with Miguel Almoron um, and Barco to a certain extent. Um, you know, that model is there. And I think once it's a proven route as well, other than players then go, OK, great. I, I can get to wherever the final destination is. I can get there via MLS. And I think it's only taken one or two kind of success stories to see that happen. But also the talent in America as well. American players themselves are becoming very highly sought after. So clubs now know, let's invest in our academies, let's invest in the, in the athletes that we have in this country because ultimately they can help us with, our, with the local community because it's local players. Um, but two, we can sell them to Europe for, for big dollar. Um, and and one of the things that, that you mentioned previously that, that I completely agree on is that America produces different types of players. Like now in soccer, you are seeing like great athletes come out, but multi-sport. And so they've, they've, they seem to have like more ability sort of packaged into them, partly because the rest of the, the, rest of the countries in the world 
only play other bad sports for the most part. Like cricket, <laughs> eh, wait, I'm sorry, Luke, I'm sorry. Luke, Come on. Luke recently uh, got involved in cricket as well, so. Um, but you know, basketball's a great sport. Like, you know, basketball's a great sport, right? And uh, you know, hockey is an okay sport. Uh, football, never mind. All right, I'm gonna move on. You're gonna get some hate mail. I know, I know. <laughs> Speaking of hate mail, um, no, uh, tell us, so here's, here's the thing that, that actually, I hadn't had a chance to talk to Jason, and we haven't brought this up, but I'm super stoked about it. Arsenal's academy is awesome right now. Tell me, like, what, what, where did that come from? For years, like, there was nothing. And now, finally, even that player development looks really interesting. It's not MLS, but, like, they, they have things turning out of North London that people would love to root for, which is one of the keys about it. When you bring academy players up, it actually seems to engage fans more. What happened and, and why? So... I mean, part of it's certainly luck, of course. Like, you bring kids into the pipeline No one wants early. to hear that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, let's be honest, though. I mean, but there has to be some good things going on, too, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have the volume. Um, I think, you know, just to bring it back to the conversation on data and analytics, I mean, certainly the things we were doing at Arsenal helped. Um, you know, you wouldn't take all the credit, but we started collecting data on the academy in 2011. Um, we had full data for now for over 10 years on um, the U21s, they're now U23s and the U17s, and it ended up being very predictive. Um, I mean, when Bukayo Saka was 15 years old, we already knew he was an outstanding talent, and that helps you along the way because you know who to keep. Yep. Um, the second thing is that um, one of the things that I felt most gratified by was um, the young players actually really liking the data. So it became part of their development process. Um, you know, we, they, we would have development reviews with them and, and they would get to know what the data was that we were using. And our data isn't the same as yours and it's not the same as, what, as what's on the market, but they were trained in the things that um, the data said helped create value on the football pitch. And we had some funny stories like we, you know, the expected threat models that you see, the possession value models, we would kind of have ratings for different passes and how much they were increasing goal scoring probability. <laughs> and one kid came in and said, listen, you missed a pass. This pass created a lot of goal scoring value. Now I wanna know why I didn't show up. <laughs> so we, you know, we had a long discussion about it. <laughs> but but you know, it's really cool when you get that kind of engagement with the younger people, because presumably they're gonna carry that on. Um, and it, it should help them improve, be, you know, knowing what the things that will will make their career better. Also, if you can really break that down to them so they know what they should work on, it's really helpful. So, so I think data played a part. There's obviously a, a ton more things that go into it, but, but you know, I feel like what we did was helpful. Highlighting gaps in, in player skill development and what they need to work on, especially as young people, is actually quite empowering. Like you're giving them a path of things to work on to get better. And what we have found also is that like, these young players are desperate for that. And, and even at like the high school level, like they would love to see that. I know that the MLS teams, as you mentioned, like they also have academy games and you are seeing the players engage with it. They feel like it, you know, they're able to take a little more control over like what's going on as opposed to just kind of the whim of the coach and what he thinks is important. And I think well, that's a big difference. It's also football is a bit of an amorphous game. So if you can actually turn it into something that's more tangible, it just makes it easier for people to get to solutions, I think. All right. So... I'm going to shift gears a little bit, um, and, and also this is, this is a recent change. Raul, 
we have actually talked about Barcelona's women's team for like five, six years, like for, for quite a long time. And, and some of your analysts were like very interesting and, and we've learned about that. Barcelona's women's team right now are an absolute juggernaut. Like they, they're just trouncing the best women's teams in Europe. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about what has changed in recent years there? And, and then we'll, we'll talk a little more about women's football more broadly. Well, uh, in Barca, we don't speak about uh, women's football or, or men's football. We speak about football. And uh, the women's uh, department or, or, or the football women's uh, decided, uh, I don't know, five, six or seven years ago to, to take the same way of the, of the modeling of play of, of, the, of the men's, of, of the kids. And, and they invest in uh, education of coaches and also uh, with, the, with the players. And, and they start in playing in one, uh, one model that is uh, demonstrated very, very efficient and more attractive for, for, the, uh, for the fans, for the fans of Barca, eh? because they are, every, every culture is different. No? And, and I can tell you that the feeling of the fans of Barca today is happier with the performance and the play with the women than the, the, the men's. The, um, normally, the second team, uh, we are in a stadium, Jochen Griff Stadium, they are fully for the uh, second team and not uh, for the women's. And uh, in the last two years, this is changing. The fans, they are, uh, uh, prefer seeing the women's match than the men's match. And, and, and this season, uh, they, they start to see some kids, boys, with teachers of women's uh, boys, and this is fantastic. And, and we prefer to uh, speak about uh, football and not about sex. We have found it interesting. So for those of you that don't know, Statsbomb gives away um, women's data and uh, Statsbomb IQ to the women's teams for free. Uh, inside of their own leagues. And, and we've been doing this for years because we wanted to do the same sort of thing. We wanted to, to sort of equalize the, the access to data, even though women have, the women's teams classically have like considerably smaller budgets. Um, and sorry, yep. I can interrupt you because I want to say this. Now, the more open uh, team in the Barca to work with data is the female team. I don't know if uh, because his coach has uh, 30 years old, I don't know because they don't have uh, the same resource of the of the men's and and they take profit of all the resources, but uh, I can say that is the more open uh, uh, staff uh, to work with data. So one of the problems that we found is is simply personnel. And and Lucy, uh, we were talking about in the in the sort of pre-panel discussion, um, the FAWSL uh, recently signed in it. Well, for women's football, uh, quite a large. Uh, new deal to be broadcast on, on television, et cetera. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you've seen in the, in the, in the problems with like, you know, simply staffing and, and finding the personnel in this particular version of the sport, and then how you think those, those new commercial deals might change that. Uh, yeah, I mean, commercial deals are, are, are the market, right? They, they drive even the men's game. Um, so the fact that they're getting that investment is, is going to encourage and, and promote the support where it needs to be promoted because I think the more that we see women in these positions and professional women as well, um, the more it just shows you as a, as a young woman growing up that that's an avenue for me and that's an avenue of interest I have and you, you naturally gravitate towards that. If it's, not, if it's not broadcast anywhere, if it's not publicized anywhere, if we don't speak about it, you don't know about it and I think that's really the key and I think that goes throughout, you know, we're, 
whether it's female professional female players or women working in the front office in, in sports organizations, um, unless we, we hear that it's actually a thing, um, women don't think it's a career path for them or they, they don't follow that kind of that drive they might have. So for me, every kind of everything that we can do to publicize it in the positive way is, is going to only grow the sport because we always hear the negative. I always hear, uh, this is bad, or this isn't good enough, or, um, you know, negative stories um, or incidences. But you have never actually, or very rarely hear the, the success stories. And I think that's what we need to kind of shift more towards as well. Women's Euros is coming up this summer. Uh, we, I think Euros 2016 was actually sort of considered one of the fundamental change points in England mm. because people started paying attention to the women's national team. And, mm -hmm. and they, they then followed them through the World Cup and it was delayed by a year, but like, you know, women's football, obviously, both UEFA and FIFA is a, is a considerable thing that, that they care about. Um, but even though we give away data for free to like all these women's teams, like there aren't personnel to actually do it. And, and mm -hmm. Luke, you've, your group actually at Zealus has done a great job of, of finding, uh, you know, talent in this space, but like, you know, how do we get more of it? Like, do you have any, any ideas on how to encourage that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good, it's something that has evolved over time. I've seen it evolve, you know, about, I guess it was about six years ago when I was, when I was starting at the Kings and sort of doing my initial hiring, we, we had three analysts posted, the jobs that I posted to start. And we had a little over a thousand applicants for those three jobs. And of those thousand applicants, I think if I remember at 29 of them were female. And so, you know, we had to work really hard to broaden the applicant pool. And, and there's other areas there as well. Like, I, I don't think we had a single applicant over the age of 40, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to sort of just create, like, a broader um, applicant pool was really challenging. And, um, you know, now at Zealous, like, our, on a regular basis, weekly and almost daily, when I'm meeting with our technical team, like, half the Zoom screen faces staring back at me are women. And like that would have, seems like it would have been an insurmountable challenge even five years ago. And to be honest, a lot of it's because of the broad availability, I gotta give you credit, of the StatsBomb data. Like a lot of when we went to build out our soccer analytics team and you sort of look at people doing great public work, to be honest, a lot of the best analytics work in the last few years has been in the women's game. And it's because the data is widely available. Arsenal women's team also like, I I've, I've always been heartened by the fact that there is a broad following of the women's team for a, a very long time. Uh, and they have one of the, the best women's players in the world, and Vivian Miyadima. Mm -hmm. um, how much have you seen that change over like the last decade that you've been around? So, I mean, the women's team at Arsenal has certainly grown in popularity over the last five to six years immensely. Um, you know, I view it mostly from the standpoint, the way I interacted with them was, was through the data, and, and um, it's the same at FIFA. The things we want to measure to understand the game are the same. I mean, they may differ in quantities and averages, but um, if you go to a U15 boys tournament or the Women's World Cup or um, you know, a Premier League game, the things that make a team win or lose are actually the same. So, so for me, you know, any team that's not kind of capitalizing on parallel processes within the organization to, to work on academy women's and men's analytics together is just, I don't understand it at all. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, um, in our organization, um, you mentioned Sarah Rudd. She was, you know, one of our first employees. And, and you know, we always had kind of a 50-50 team in terms of men to women. And I credit her for that because she's, was in a leadership position and, you know, um, 
it, I'm not saying she she kind of said we're going to do it this way, but it just happened naturally. You know, she um, kind of brought in the the right candidates for the interviews. We hired good people. So so I think um, part of it is just you know getting a few small things in place, and it, it takes care of itself a bit. IX is another place like Vasa de Boda has been a, a past uh, panelist here as well. And, and her group has a lot of very talented, qualified women. It's not for any lack of ability. It's simply finding the environment and creating the environment that, that they can feel comfortable in and successful in it. We, you know, if you're interested and you're, you're a woman and, you know, Luke's group has done a great job in mentoring them, I, it is opening up more and more opportunities. So, uh, you know, definitely get involved. I, 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 you know, the sport needs you and, and the sport is changing to make it a, a much better place to, to be around. And I, I, I certainly feel that, that way in the last sort of 10 years. I mean, look, Lucy's here on stage, a general manager of, a, <laughs> of an MLS team. Like, that, that would have been unheard of a decade ago and, and even five years ago, quite challenging. How have you, are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable sort of like, you know, being in that spot, in that spotlight? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, some, it's, it's funny. People ask me about it a lot, obviously. And um, um, in a funny way, I don't see my gender anymore. Like, I'm, you know, I go to work, I'm professional, and I do my job to the best of my ability. And, and ultimately, that's got me where I am. Um, and my experiences in, in the professional game have been very positive. Um, and that's what I mean about we're very quick to, to publicize the negative examples, but my experiences have, have been none, none but I've just been treated like, even when I was a, a video analyst at Reading all those years ago, it's like I was just treated like one of the guys, just another member of the team in a locker room. So mm -hmm. um, that has allowed me to, to grow and I think have the confidence. And, you know, as a GM in this role, um, my colleagues around me, um, my fellow GMs, they, they treat me just like they treat everybody else. Um, and I've never felt kind of hindered by my gender. All right. So apparently there's a World Cup this year. Did, did you schedule that? No. Uh, we're not allowed to ask Jason the, the important World Cup questions. He has to, he has to excuse himself. But uh, one of the questions that we, we got from, from our, our, our student um, helper was, you know, do you have any predictions for the World Cup? Are you, what are you looking forward to? Like, what, what are we going to see, you know, on the field? Like, Raul, Spain, Spain feels like they've been this close. Well, yes, I hope that uh, they are new young players from, from Barcelona. Maybe can help, uh, like, uh, Pedri, like, uh, Gabi, like, uh, Ansu Fati, like, th these kind of, of uh, players that maybe can do this this push to, to Spain. And a genuinely great coach that was also... Yes, also. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, maybe I don't know. It's very, very difficult. Uh, it's an short uh, tournament, and you need to be lucky in a lot of situations. And, and it, this, this is one of the uh, best uh, national teams, but also there are others, uh, incredible national teams, like French, like, I don't know. Okay. Um, I'm going to open this up to the, the broader panel. Uh, because I, I think that hmm, I've lost my spot. <laughs> Sorry about that. See, I'm not normally a moderator. I'm normally a football coach. I, I was working on that too. I, I got distracted by it. Um, so yeah, let's let's go ahead and, and, and look at some of the other questions. It was mentioned in the Salah discussion. Can we talk a little bit more about the value discrepancy in analyzing your own player versus trying to get similar data on a potential trade or a free agent target, and how you navigate that challenge when acquiring? A not or acquiring a new player. Luke, you're very familiar with the concept of risk. Tell us a, a little bit around that. 
Yeah, you know, I think the first thing with risk is just like understanding that, that the future is not certain, right? And, and anyone who's been around North American sports for a while and has seen a draft has sort of understood that teams have their board of, you know, in the NBA, maybe one through 60. And I, but where you get a ton of value is just understanding like, you know, the guy you have four and the guy you have five, you're really talking about predict, predicting their performance in like years out, right? And so if you, you might think that number four is better than number five, but really when you think about projecting four years in the future, it's, it's, it's a coin flip, probably, right? So understanding that, that you know, you're ultimately you're predicting the future and there's an inherent amount of uncertainty. Um, you know, that's sort of the biggest first piece I would say, and then the second thing is can we measure it? Um, and the, the answer is yes, we can in, in almost all sports, and I think where teams tend to struggle a lot is how do we weight all the different sources of information? You know, one of the things we talked about here is that, is that teams have all this extra information on their own players. I have like a, a very different viewpoint on that, which is that most teams internally tend to drastically overweigh uh, irrelevant things that they get internally. So, you know, this guy had some little off-court issues or, you know, he doesn't, doesn't eat his Wheaties in the morning or whatever, those little things, and they say, well... I'm not sure you're allowed to do product placement here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but when it, most of these things, once you condition on their actual underlying skill, once you know how good a player is on the court, most of these things become either irrelevant or very close to insignificant. So... You know, I think a lot of the challenges when you're thinking about future risk is like, how do you measure that risk? And a lot of it's about not just incorporating, you know, you said like the jigsaw puzzle of all the things, but these jigsaw puzzle pieces should not be the same size. Mm. Lucy, I, you, you have, oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say, um, I, in terms of the external information, you know, you have this kind of anecdotal information, which we're talking about a little bit, but up until recently, you didn't really have access to physical data from players maybe outside of your team, certainly at most you'd be getting your league. Now with the broadcast tracking, which is something that is becoming more available, actually knowing someone's physical output and their speed is really valuable, mainly because if you're taking a player from a, a smaller competition, that's gonna be, you know, if you're gonna play wide in the Premier League and you need to get run behind the defenders, you're gonna have to be pretty quick. Um, and, and you know you may not be able to see that naturally if they're playing against players that aren't at Premier League level. So I think that specific um, external piece of information that you can now get a little bit more broadly is, is gonna be really helpful. So we used to use the, the FIFA Ultimate Team information, especially on center back pace, because you never see center backs run. And if they're doing their job, they don't. <laughs> like and, and so it's just like, uh, how fast is that guy? Well, the scouts have some level of opinion, but like, there's a really big error bar on that one. <laughs> but that, that's almost like the, the, the gray area in analysis, right? Is, is that a cross-league kind of comparison, which ultimately assigning any player is going to be a risk. The risk probably increases if you start to buy them from outside your league, from a different continent, um, because ultimately there's never any algorithm which says, okay, a pass success rate of X in the championship looks is going to convert to a pass success rate of X in MLS. Um, and so you always have to go into it knowing that, okay, how's this player going to adapt and how do they fit the style of our play? And that's where I think the physical data is the one constant, as you say. The speed of a player doesn't change based on where he's playing, but... Um, the technical tactical data is something that you can't really replicate until a player 
lands on your on lands on your doorstep. So, yeah, there's always a risk. One of the hardest things to actually do is to to turn over your squad to fit a new coach. And one of the interesting things that Barcelona did over the years was yeah. they tried to keep a more constant style, not always succeeding because at some point you ran out of ex players that played a similar style. Mm. But I believe, you know, was it in your mind as part of that? Yes, because when, when you are a new coach, it changed all, changed the, 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 the training session, changed the exercise, uh, trained the emotional uh, behavior of the players. We can forget that the, the emotional thing uh, is changing all. And, and we don't take and go, and we, we need to, to, to uh, in the future, uh, be careful with this kind of, of, of data. The, if only control the, the six or seven emotion of the player, if he's angry, if he's uh, happy, if he's worried, uh, this kind of thing uh, change all the performance during a match, during a season, during, because the, the players are uh, humans and they are affected for, for a lot of things. And, and this is very, very, very important. And also, one change of, uh, of uh, one coach is affecting all. Normally, when, when they are a, a changing uh, one coach, they appear a lot of injuries because they, they change his, his, uh, uh, his model. Yeah, yeah. yeah so we, you know, we often talk to teams that you know, are changing style. And, when you start in, say, uh, a middle block or especially a low block, and then you try and revamp sort of mid-season to a pressing team, like you see all sorts of soft tissue injuries. Like just mm -hmm. like you'll lose half a squad over the course of two months to soft tissue injuries. Or you could be Arsenal in February where you've already lost half the squad to soft tissue injuries because you've played too many games and you have players that got injured regularly. It's so much fun to have him up here. I, <laughs> I, I just feel like I get to... I don't even have to take it personally anymore. No, you don't. <laughs> You're right. You're like, that's somebody else's problem and uh, I don't need to worry about finishing fourth this year. Um, <laughs> so, so hiring analytics talent, which is a question that's very interesting to many of our audience. Um, I'm going to actually start with you because I think it, you, you've got a long history of doing this. What are you looking for, uh, Jason, uh, when you're looking for analytics talent? How's it changed over the years? Um, so you I think it's important to split different types of talent that you might want to get. Um, I see several roles in analytics. There's kind of more R&D type roles, which are only going to be relevant either if you're a company or a bigger team. Where you, if you hire, if you have one hire, um, you know, in analytics and their area of expertise is deep learning, um, and that's your only analytics person on the team, you probably made a mistake. Um, <laughs> not to say they're probably not good at what they do, but so if you're a smaller team, I would always tend towards someone who kind of masters football um, and is, you know, I mean, at the very lowest level can interpret data and explain it well. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that can do that. Um, at the next level, I would, let's say you want to dabble a bit in research, then, then that person should have some programming background. But again, I think they, um, for me, um, I would rather talk to them about football than, than their programming. I mean, we can see if they can program or not. Um, what's more important is, is, you know, can they understand the game well enough to have meaningful discussions with other people in, in the club and, and, you know, sound credible? Um, the other thing is, um, I think it's you need a good mix between humility and, and having a little bit of backbone and knowing when to have which. Um, because sometimes you're, you, you will have 
a pretty high degree of certainty about something and I think you need to stand up for it a bit. Other times, you know, maybe you have less certainty and then I think you need to step back. Um, obviously, you always need to listen. So, so it's, I think it's a hard profile to recruit for. Um, and you know, the, obviously the basic skills for me is it, there's a lot of people who can program. I want to know how well they understand the game. That's the first thing I want to enter into with them. So, and I, I think that's continued on. Luke, what do you think is the the sort of like? I rare would say thing? the exact opposite, huh. which is that <laughs> I would find people that have really solid technical skills from other sports and haven't mm. spent a lot of time being corrupted by the overwhelming irrationality that exists in football. Ooh, ooh, who hurt you? <laughs> you know, but the, the, what, what we tend to find is that the types of skill, you know, we're a little bit different because we're running the club. So the whole like communication and, you know, we can sort of, we're not always trying to convince people that they should be using data. It's just we're doing data. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, right? So we don't really worry about that part too much. We want to have the best possible player valuation possible. And ultimately, like if you look at where soccer is from an analytics perspective, it, it is lagging behind other major sports. So ultimately, we found one of the most fruitful strategies is to just borrow from those other sports. I, I think that's true. Like soccer people for years have just showed up to the basketball panels, and, and that was the sport that you, know, you used to be involved in as well. So I, you know, it, cross sport is actually a very common thing now. You see people from baseball going to a different place, basketball going to a different place. You see basketball owners buying all of the, the different sports and then you know, wanting to, to revamp them. It's a, it's a very interesting space right now. And being able to take those frameworks from outside of your sport uh, that you know are pretty solid and then bring them back and apply is, is super useful. Lucy, we've got a question from, uh, from the audience or, or from Twitter. Uh, I, I said that MLS has progressed from a retirement home to an avenue for young players to enter Europe. Uh, how much more room is there to grow, knowing that the league will always be excluded from the highest levels of European competition? Um, I think it's got massive potential to continue growing, and I think we're seeing that in some of the signings. You look at Toronto and, and the signing they just made of Insigne, and it's like, that's a player at the peak of his career choosing to come and play in MLS. Um, the more players that do that is going to then make the league more attractive, both from a player perspective, but a fandom perspective as well. Um, so the more then fandom increases, the more the, the money goes into the pot for MLS teams to, to invest in their roster. And it's a vicious circle in that sense. So I don't think it needs to be part of the big European five leagues or anything like that to be its own standalone successful competition. Um, I think it's, it's gonna continue growing. I really do, and, and that's because I've seen the quality, the quality of the league grow, but also the entertainment factor. Mm -hmm. um, the, the style of play in the league, the quality of player, and uh, the appeal to watch the games is ultimately what any of us are looking to do when we, we turn on the TV or we go to a sports game. We want to be entertained. It's a form of entertainment. So I think that MLS provides that and will continue to, to keep providing that and grow in how much it provides that with with the quality of player that we're now bringing in, whether that's a, an older head or whether that's a young, you know, a young kid from South America or a, a player coming through the academy. In, in ways of like sort of like population demographics, it, both men and women, it is a much more highly played sport than it would have been 20 years ago. And I think one of the bigger things that we've seen is the quality of the coaching at the mm -hmm. youth levels is starting to improve. It hasn't sort of completely improved yet, but it has started to. Raul La Masia. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to be there and actually got to take my son there. Um, and I remember 
I remember being surprised by how much the coaches wanted uh, the young people to stay at home for a very long time. You, bring, you brought them to the academy, the legendary academy, at a later date than I would have thought otherwise, but you also were able to scour Spain uh, looking for like all of the possible talent you could find. Well, La Masia, um, uh, if you want, Barca is a, a, a club that is uh, uh, working by, by knowledge. Maybe Barca is one of the richest club in, in, in knowledge uh, dimension. For this reason, uh, we, we prefer develop players inside that, that buy because we don't have very good experience buying players. We prefer uh, 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 buy. And for this reason, uh, uh, we invest a lot to, to educate the, the players inside. And, and, and every time more youngs can uh, perform very well in, in, in the professional team. And in this moment of crisis, appear uh, young people, but don't appear. Uh, they have the opportunity in this moment, because in other uh, generation also they are very good players. But in this moment, they are young players performance very well because they are uh, uh, prepared to, to, to performance. And, and La Masia is, uh, is the... Um, the, well, the, the mine of, of, of Arsenal. One of the things that we found challenging at, at different clubs is predicting the pathway of youth players into the, the senior team. I think it's a, a good question on the Arsenal side of things. Like, how reliable did you find the academy projections and, and what the coaches were telling you to be able to then sort of evaluate and shift your transfer funding over the next couple of years as to, we need this now, but in two years' time, we've got like, you know, a, a potential first string right back in like a Hector Bayerin or something like that, that, that we think is going to be a starter. Um, I mean, it, it, it was tricky because for a long time, we only knew that the player was the best we had had in our academy. And nowadays, you can get the data across all the academies um, because the, the films are available. So we could only say, hey, this is the best guy we've had come out of this academy in 10 it's, years. It's literally just available to his team, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. MLS, they have a big group, yeah. group sharing, but you know, the, the, the academy sharing is a, is a very tricky one. That's a, yeah. that's a fascinating inside versus outside thing. So, so then we knew this was the best player we had. Would that mean that he was definitely Arsenal quality? We didn't know that. Um, the better way, if you can, in most cases, to, is to get them out for a loan experience yeah. and let and and you know then you can measure them against a championship player, know if how they compare to a normal 18 or 19 year old in the championship. So I think the um, um, you know you kind of just you still have some guesswork to do, even if you have really good data on them. I think the Bundesliga has just decided that all of the best young English players are going to be just fine in Germany. Yeah. That's the choice. All right, so we've got I think maybe one more question here from the outside. Uh, how translatable is data in the execution of findings uh, during game versus in play? And tell us a little more, you know, it's, it's a much more fluid game. How much are you trying to, to get down at halftime or, or to the coaches to be able to, to sort of adjust things? I think Lucy's a, a good place to start because I know that you actually work pretty tightly with your coaches that just came out of preseason. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for, for me, the, the more important aspects of data, I guess data in that sense in during a game is more about what you're seeing visually. Um, Raul spoke earlier about spaces um, and football really being, you know, a spatial game. And for me, I think in those key moments when you get, you know, a very short period at half time to be able to show video to, to a player or, um, or to the coaching staff to highlight your point is actually the, the best use of, of video or data in that aspect. Um, 
after the game when you take the emotion out of it is, is for me when data becomes more important and, and for me again trend analysis and looking over multiple games is always much more beneficial and reliable than taking any one single game because of the dynamic nature of the game and look someone gets sent off after 20 minutes or somebody gets injured or you go a goal down and the whole the whole game plan goes out the window so it's for me doing that individual one-off game basis is is difficult and difficult to impact it during a game i feel like it's more about what you're seeing visually and and it's easier to get that message across as well through video quickly than it is through pouring through pouring through data too Jason, I know you talked about the tear of the single game sample and, yeah. uh, and, and releasing that to the coaches. Uh, tell me a little about the experience there. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, resistant to do <laughs> single game data in the beginning because of, of what Lucy was just saying. You don't want to overestimate or overanalyze what happened in just that one game. There's so much that goes on. So um, <coughs> I always wanted to do at least six games. But we kind of debated it internally for a while and then figured out that Having the single game data did have some use as long as it was used in the right way. Um, so kind of understanding, you know, in a very um, regimented way why things went the way they did. But also sometimes you would have a conclusion about what happened and actually you look at the data and you're like, actually, that's not right. Um, so it did help in that way, but I still always preferred, you know, discussing longer trends. Luke, have you tried to, to nudge your coaches uh, on, on the live data type stuff? tend to agree with these guys that, for the most part, you're, you're way likely to overreact to small sample sizes than you are to get meaningful insights. Oh, that's spoken just like the, the, yeah, <laughs> the quantitative person that you are. I would say the, the one aspect of data I think can be quite beneficial is, is probably the physical data. If you're able to start seeing your players' loads compared to what maybe um, you know their training, typical training loads are and what their typical averages are and things like that, to start to see, like, in the data that maybe they're, they're getting to their limits and you're starting to think subjectively as well, like is the fullback able to get up and down as much as we want him to? That can kind of give you some kind of like insight into as his accelerations decreased like in the last 10 minutes. And those kind of things I think can be important to, to make substitutions at the right time. So I think the horn is, has just gone off on us. So I want to thank you so much for all of your participation here. It's been an amazing panel. Uh, thank you Sloan to, to hosting us here. And uh, I just wanted to say, be curious, not judgmental. <laughs> <laughs>